0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, we're happy to have Donald Worster on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, A Passion for Nature, The Life of John Muir. I lived in California for a... Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, we're happy to have Donald Worster on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, A Passion for Nature, The Life of John Muir. I lived in California for a time, and I used to spend my Saturdays and Sundays walking around Muir Woods, which is north of San Francisco. I didn't do it every weekend, but I did it as often as I could. I also had the opportunity to hike a little bit in the Sierra, which I have to say was Quite a remarkable experience for a boy from Kansas. I I knew nothing about John Muir uh, back in those days, but I'm happy to say I know a lot more about him now. And thanks to Don Worcester and his terrific book. Uh, If you're interested at all in the origins of the American conservation movement or the Sierra Club or any of these national parks in California that I've mentioned, you'll really want to read this book. More so because Don Worcester is one of the founders of environmental history, which is a burgeoning enterprise in our discipline today. So I really enjoyed talking to Don, and I hope that you enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Don.
1: Hi, Marshall. Good to be with you.
0: Uh, How are you today?
1: I'm sitting here in in cold December sunshine, feeling quite good.
0: In Lawrence, Kansas? Yes. Yes. As I was saying in the pre-interview, the place I um, always wanted to end up in life, and, and didn't, unfortunately. Um, I should tell our listeners that today we have Don Worster on the show and we'll be talking about his new book, A Passion for Nature, The Life of John Muir. Um, And I've read the book and it's absolutely uh, terrific. Uh, The the amount of detail involved is is, um, truly admirable. As somebody who studies in a very document poor environment, it must have been a real treat to study, study in such a a document rich. Oh, I'm
1: overwhelmed by the, the
0: yeah, details. I imagine. Yeah, I'm sure that's <laughs> He
1: saved true. everything. Yeah,
0: he, yeah, well, and he was quite a graphomaniac as well. He wrote quite a bit, but we'll come yeah. to that in a moment. Um, why don't you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up and where you went to school, and how you became involved in, in founding the field of environmental history.
1: Sure. Uh, well, I'm a native of uh, the Mojave Desert, California. My parents were Dust Bowl refugees. We went out there in the 1930s, and I was born in 1941. Uh, but I grew up on the Great Plains, they came back this way after World War II and uh, I grew up here and w- went to the University of Kansas as undergraduate mm-hmm. uh, and then went back east uh, to Yale University to uh, do my Ph.D. in History of American Studies um, <clears throat> I think growing up on the Great Plains leaves one with a powerful sense of the environment, the land, climate, sky, mm-hmm. soil uh, it's hard to get away from it here. It's, it's right there in your face all the time. Uh, when I went back east to New England, you know, it's such a different place. I mean, the water just oozes out of the ground everywhere in the spring. Uh, I loved it, but it was so radically different. I just couldn't get over, I think, uh, these, these differences. Uh, I was also, when I got back there, reading a lot of New England writers like Henry David Thoreau, Rachel Carson, she's from mm-hmm. Pennsylvania, but she has place on the coast of Maine. And uh getting interested in the environmental issues of the 60s leading up to uh, Earth Day 1970.
0: Mm-hmm. I remember that very well, by the way. I, I remember my grade school went down to the local creek in Wichita, which was, of course, horribly polluted and full of trash.
1: <laughs> and, and we
0: cleaned it up in 1971. So I'm sorry oh, to interrupt. Go ahead.
1: That was a big day. I mean, the 20 million people around the country were involved in it. Mm-hmm. I was already thinking about how I, as a historian, could relate to some of these issues. I mean, my classes were mostly about oh, the South and slavery or New England and Puritan theology.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: but I was first interested in the American West, a country I'd come from, and, uh, and, but also interested in how one could go about connecting the study of history to study of these environmental issues, where they came from, source of our problems. Mm-hmm. And it just drew me deeper and deeper into it. Some of my fellow graduate students were kind of amused, wondering what, what I was up to <laughs> writing history. They said, it's writing history for the Bears or something <laughs> like that. But uh, I, I was, you know, fairly alone. I mean, I was alone at graduate school uh, doing this, but a few other people were around the country thinking along similar lines.
0: And and who were they, if you don't mind just filling us in? I... Well,
1: probably the leading figure at that point was a guy named Roderick Nash. hmm who uh, retired a few years ago from the University of California, Santa Barbara. Uh, he'd written a book on the wilderness and the American mind. But there were other people like Leo Marks, uh, who retired recently from MIT, who written on The Machine in the Garden. Mm-hmm. Uh, Henry Nash Smith's great book on the West, Virgin Land. Um, people at like KU that I'd studied, I hadn't studied with, but I'd known about. As undergraduates, uh, James Malin, who was an historian interested in ecology,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, Walter Prescott Webb down in Texas, very interested in environment, geography, and history. Um, but there was no field as such, and uh, I probably taught one of the very first courses in this in this uh, area at Yale in my last year there. Um, but I thought that we should really make some history out of Take into account the fact that it's not just about people; it's the relationships between people and the natural world. They've been extremely important, mm-hmm. even powerful. Mm-hmm. So that's how I got into it, and I'm sort of running against the grain, I guess. But I'm, I'm really, you know, these days uh, amazed at where this field has gone. It's now quite uh, an international field. There, are organizations actually for Latin America and. Uh, Europe, and uh, there's a European Society for Environmental History. There are scholars in India, China, who are doing um, environmental history.
2: So, Mm -hmm.
1: it's really taken off, Mm -hmm. thanks to a lot of of, uh, people in support.
0: So, at that point, um, what was your uh, first major project in environmental history?
1: My first major project was my dissertation at Yale. I was Mm -hmm. trying to teach myself a little bit of science, which I thought would be absolutely necessary to make any progress in this field. I mean, the the sciences weren't the only source of authority or information on the subject, but we needed to know the sciences, particularly ecology. So I set about to write a history of ecology. Mm -hmm. I wasn't going to be a mathematical model or anything like that in the field. (laughs) That was out of the question. But Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't have a very strong science background as an undergraduate, but I set about to study the history of ecology. And
2: mm-hmm.
1: That was my dissertation, a book called Nature's Economy. Mm-hmm. Still in print now. and actually available in about six or seven, four months. Wow. So
2: uh,
1: from there I went on and did a book. I came back to my roots. I did a book on the dirty 30s, a Dust Bowl, mm-hmm. a Tragedy of the Great Plains of the 1930s.
2: Um,
1: and uh, it was a shorter book. But uh that was uh that was my second project and it got a lot of good attention, won a prize and um and I went on from there to study issues like water in the West. A lot of stuff on the West. The environment of the West. Mm-hmm. Aridity and land issues and and so forth.
0: Mm-hmm. It must have been exciting to kind of found a field. I I, I don't even know what that would be like. <laughs> you know, the things I study, people started to study in the 18th century. So,
1: well, you can say, of course, that people were studying these kinds of issues in the 18th century in some fashion or other. Certainly, there were there are lots of precedents here in all kinds of countries. But having a field that was exclusively called environmental history and it was trying to theorize about what that might be and and try to ask how history can contribute to questions of, of uh, well, environmental degradation or
2: mm-hmm.
1: problem solving or simply try to understand the, the role that people have in environmental change. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I said, you know, a lot of people got into this very quickly. It was not uh, I was only one of many, many people who came together.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: By the mid-'70s, we had a society organized. I wasn't actually the first president. I wasn't even the organizer of the society.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: A guy named John Opie. Uh, So, you know, there are a lot of of people
0: Mm -hmm. throwing Mm -hmm. their
1: weight into this field.
0: Mm -hmm. So how did you come to write about Muir? How did he pique your interest?
1: Well, I'd done an earlier book on uh, John Wesley Powell, he may not be familiar to everybody, but he was the, the main explorer of the Colorado River in the late 1860s, and he wrote a lot about the West and, and the arid lands, uh, and became the second director of the U.S. Geological Survey in Washington. I wrote a pretty long, big, fat book on him, six or seven hundred pages, mm-hmm. but he had a fascinating life, and I kind of wanted to do a couple of books on... The origins or the foundations of environmental thinking, particularly related to the West, and uh, John Muir was the obvious other choice. They were almost exact contemporaries. They came from British immigrant families of Protestant evangelical background. They both were named John, so I <laughs> set about, you know, to do my project, which. I sometimes call two Johns a foot in the West.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: Looking for a good time is the subject.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So what was written on Muir prior to this book?
1: Oh, a bunch of things. I mean, the main outlines of Muir's life have been known for quite a while. He wrote an autobiography. Uh, One of his close associates wrote a a kind of biographical sketch of him. There was a a full-blown biography done in the 1940s. actually won the Pulitzer Prize,
2: Hmm. Uh,
1: but uh, since then there have been a bunch of books, but uh, uh, they were mostly by people working in the field of literature.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: They were very much oriented towards Muir as a writer, the text that he wrote, Um, not so much interested in Muir's uh, place in his period of history, Mm -hmm. uh, his role in the conservation movement, um, you know, the sources of his ideas and so on,
2: mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
1: intellectual and cultural history.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so I, I I felt that somebody ought to sit down and go back through all the, his papers and just do, you know, a careful um, accounting of his life, and uh, that that had really not been done since mm-hmm. the 40s. And even then, you know, the 40s uh, idea of biography was often quite fictionalizing, you know, you can imagine somebody coming down the steps, their eyes flashing, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, I couldn't get away with that. I really wanted to ground this very closely to the sources
0: and mm-hmm. identify like, where I got my stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the most interesting things about the book was the number of moments at which you are uh, critical is the word that comes to mind. That might not be the right word. Of Muir's own attempts to manage his image, he was quite conscious of who he was
1: oh sure, yeah, yeah, certainly.
0: maybe you could talk a little bit about that
1: well, he i think all along uh saw himself through other people's eyes. He was a very outgoing sociable guy, and people responded very warmly to him, but they all uh had expectations for him they had uh he had many champions um particularly the wife of one of his college professors in Madison, who uh, really had her own vision of him. And he responded to these people from an early age. Uh, But as he goes along in life, clearly people are looking to him to be uh, a kind of prophet for the age. And as he lets his beard grow longer and longer and Mm -hmm. longer, he really does begin to look like some kind of prophet coming down over the mountains in you know, mm-hmm. his walking stick. And he he played that role. He he. People say to him, you know, something like, well, I can just imagine you up there in your mountain home. <laughs> he writes back, yes, it's wonderful and so forth. But he's actually sitting in his second floor study in his <laughs> nice house and, you know, down in the valley. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not that he's lying. It's just that, you know, he has developed a persona
0: that
1: uh, mm-hmm. he has to live up to.
0: Yeah, that's, that's actually very well put. He had developed a, a persona that he, he grew to serve, I guess, and I think that most people that gain a certain amount of public notoriety begin to serve their public images re- rather than the truth, which is, I guess, what we serve. Uh, so,
1: sometimes quite destructively. Yes, you know,
0: absolutely. Yeah. Hemingway or mm-hmm. Hunter Thompson or somebody like that. Mm-hmm. But, no, that's exactly right. So... Maybe you could begin by telling us about Muir's background. He was, uh, I didn't know this prior to reading the book, he was Scottish.
1: Sure, he spent uh, about the first uh, 11 years of his life in Scotland in a small fishing village, his native home, on the North Sea, about 30 miles from Edinburgh. Uh, Hardly anybody who's written about Muir in the United States has actually been to that village. There's a lot of interest in Muir there today. His birthplace has been preserved and turned into a museum. The Scots have really suddenly gotten quite interested in this guy.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, he was born there in the late 1830s. Uh, and I think it left a deep impact on him that hadn't been fully appreciated before.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He always saw himself as a Scotsman.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, not not so much as a, as a, Briton, uh, a Brit, but uh, as because he had some real problems with the British, as all Scotsmen do. hmm uh, I mean the English, uh, that is, mm-hmm. uh, imposing their ideas on them. But uh, he, his whole family immigrated to the United States in the late 1840s. His father made the decision to uproot them and bring them to the United States. So he had no choice in the matter, but he, he always thought of himself as somebody who kept Scottish culture alive. Mm-hmm. Robert Burns was one of the big influences on his life,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, poet, uh, Robert Burns. He knew him by memory. He was still writing about Burns and quoting Burns near the end of his life. Mm-hmm. So it was a lifelong impact.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And also in that background, there were, there were people like uh, Adam Smith, you know, the great founding mm-hmm. genius of capitalism, or, or a lot of the uh, early developments in technology and factory management, inventions. Um, and then just across the border, there's, there's William Wordsworth. Mm-hmm. Uh, you think of him as English, but he really comes from the border country. Way up north, uh, very closely related to Burns. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a rich, uh, heady brew of ideas and influences that even a kid who's is, is growing up and going to the schools there is absorbing. Oh, and I want wh- to stay with, with me for, for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt. Why uh, did his father uh, choose to immigrate? to the United States. I, of course, know the answer to this question um, because I've read the book, but please tell our <laughs> listeners, because it's an interesting story, how the, the story of of, of how um, his faith play, plays a major role in his life.
1: Yeah, I think it was almost completely a matter of of his own, uh, his religious feelings and his desire to be independent of the religious culture around him. He, economically, he wasn't doing badly. He wasn't immigrating out of poverty, as for many others of that era were. Uh, he had i gotten very interested in the ideas of Alexander Campbell, who uh, founded uh, a religious group that still continues today, the Christian Church, Church of Christ. Um, he was an immigrant from Scotland to the United States and then over speaking in Scotland, I think Muir's father heard him and thought, I'll go to America, you know, I'll, I'll get out of this, this Church of Scotland world uh, and all the disputes here and I will be my own man um uh, to to find my own religious way, so he was he didn't simply become a follower of Campbell. he was always an independent minded guy who basically was trying to invent his own religion. It would be very very powerfully Protestant and Christian, but it would be his own and uh he, and in fact, that's what happened when they got to Wisconsin. he became more of an evangelist and uh preaching his own version of the gospels. <laughs> And he continued that way the rest of his life. He was just a seeker after truth within the framework of of the past, but nonetheless independent, man-minded man. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. And what sort of impact did this have on uh, John Muir himself?
1: Well, two impacts. Uh, in the first place, he he clearly resented his father's power and patriarchal authority, uh, and grew up. Uh, resisting, fighting against his father. His father trying to discipline him, force him into his way of thinking in life and mere, mere thought exploiting him. So there was a lot of tension and hostility that continued all through his early days, mm-hmm. even up until you know, to the time he was probably thirty years old. Uh, and I think part of the part of the reason why he just left the Midwest altogether was he'd his family, uh, his father particularly, uh, was uh, an obstacle to his own independence. So he finds his own country out in California eventually. Mm-hmm. By that point, he can sort of look back and see the better side of his father. And, um, and by the time his father died, Muir had come around to, I think, feel much more positively about some aspects of his father's life, particularly that spiritual religious quest, because mm-hmm. after all, that's exactly what John Muir ends up doing, yeah. too. Yeah, I mean he's a kind of religious seeker. Yeah, I think that's the only way we can really think about him. Is really a kind of religious seeker, and and the man who eventually ends up far more than his father does, inventing a religion mm-hmm. and propagating it, and leaving it behind.
0: hmm mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things that comes uh, very clear uh, in the book, particularly the part about his early life, is that um, Muir seems to have been a, a preternaturally talented guy in many ways especially his um his artistic and mechanical abilities uh were just remarkable
1: yeah that's what everybody saw in him and assumed that this would be his his future his career would be either an inventor or a factory manager or an industrialist and for a long time he tried to follow that bent uh, he thought that too was his destiny mm-hmm. at the to- at the same time he was always not altogether happy with that. He, he loved machines. He loved seeing how things work. He loved taking them apart, mm-hmm. assembling them, and you're referring
0: uh, to some of the inventions. <laughs> yes, some of you. Why don't you describe some of those because they're truly mind-boggling.
1: Well, they are. I mean, they are, they're not the sort of thing that could ever have had much commercial success. Uh, he carved out of wood by hand uh, all the gears and pieces and so on that he assembled into these various machines. One of them was a bed that uh, the bottom of the bed, the foot of the bed dropped at a certain point. Clockwork mechanism dropped the bed and sat the sleeping person upright (laughs) suddenly. So it was like a a real alarm clock, Mm -hmm. one you couldn't turn off. Mm -hmm. Um, Made a lot of noise, I I gather. Um, Another one was a machine for studding, probably his most famous one. uh, Mm that he used as a student at the University of Wisconsin, and it would had a great clockwork mechanism. A lot of it was just quite symbolic. You know, It wasn't just uh, a machine, but it had so many artistic embellishments that were artistic, like mm-hmm. Blake, they were made up of books, um, mm-hmm. carved books. But the machine was basically to discipline him as a student. So every 15 minutes, the clockwork mechanism would drop a book down in front of him and turn to the page that he was supposed to be reading. <laughs> After 15 minutes, it would close, and the next book would come down so that he could do his studies. Mm-hmm. And he would lock this machine so that he couldn't stop it or slow it down. He mm-hmm. had to, I mean, he really clearly wanted and felt he needed a lot of discipline mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, to make him cue to his work and stop dreaming, looking out the window.
0: Yeah, I, I find this just fascinating because it is not the profile that we ordinarily associate with. Um, and I won't mention any of the very negative epithets that are often thrown at these people—people uh, p- people who are in love with nature. They don't tend to be engineers by training.
1: Yeah, well, maybe we have some some wrong stereotypes yes, here. Yes, no, I think
0: that's right. Yeah, I think because I think,
1: I think there there is a huge connection between people who who like to see how things work and who are fascinated by how the natural world works.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That
1: was a big connection for Muir.
0: Mm -hmm. So Muir lands in Wisconsin, and uh, he uh, does he, uh, remind me of the chronology, does he go to work as a, uh, he works in a mill for a time, and then goes to university for a bit? Is that correct?
1: Uh, He uh, he gets work in the workshop of an inventor uh, over on the Mississippi River, but then eventually finds a way that he can afford to go to the University of Inner Studies. Uh, But the Civil War by this point has broken out, so he's trying to be a student at a very tumultuous time in Wisconsin, or on any campus for that matter, because a lot of the students are going off to war, or Mm -hmm. there's a lot of debate and so on, a lot of tense feelings about uh, what's going on. and he was always a bit of a maverick as a student anyway. I mean, he wanted to follow his own course in a time where the curriculum was pretty rigid. Um, but he, So he only stays two years, really at the University of Wisconsin.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: An important period for him. He meets some very important people, professors particularly,
2: mm-hmm.
1: who are themselves a bit of a maverick type. And, and they, they help him find his way. Um, but his formal education is not all that great when you put it together.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But this is where he first introduced to introduce botany and geology, which will yeah. become his passions. Yeah, and then
1: geology he... came from one of his professors, the botany from a fellow student. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Then at, at the close of his couple of years at Wisconsin, where he makes very close ties with people, he goes on this, if I recall correctly, incredible um, trek from uh, from I guess it's, uh, Indiana. Uh, to uh, Florida with the intention of going further south. Maybe you could talk a little about that. Because I I found it completely fascinating that someone could simply decide to walk from Indiana to Florida.
2: (laughs)
1: Well, you have to first uh, acknowledge that uh, he not only left the University of Wisconsin, he left the United States for almost two years. Uh, He he dodged a draft, you might say. Mm -hmm. He did not want to go into the Civil War. He did not want to be... In that bloodbath, he hated the whole idea of war. Uh, and he came back to the United States after the war was over with no mm-hmm. penalties and tried to get a job in a factory. And he was quite successful at this, but uh, injured one of his eyes, mm-hmm. blinded himself. He appeared permanently.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Suddenly came to his senses, you might say, and said, I don't want this kind of life.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it was at that moment that he decides simply to throw everything to the winds. And uh, and take this wild trip that would eventually hope to lead him to South America. Mm-hmm. Great rainforest and the tropics and all the vegetation. I mean he thought this was, you know, heaven for a botanist. So he set out walking. I mean it is an extraordinary story. How many people set out walking for a thousand miles? <laughs> I don't
0: know. Nobody I know.
1: <laughs> but it takes him right through the the uh defeated South. Uh uh, right after the Civil War. He, he leaves in 1867 and the trip lasts into 1868. Uh, the last part of it was uh, was mostly spent on a, in a little fishing village on the Gulf Coast of Florida, Cedar Key. I've been there. It's not much bigger today than it was in his day. Uh, but he was there for months because he'd been struck by malaria mm-hmm. and uh, couldn't go anywhere from there and uh, but he finally gets a boat out of out of that harbor to Cuba, another boat to New York, another boat back to Panama, across the Panama uh, isthmus before there was the Panama Canal, mm-hmm. and uh, rounds up into San Francisco Bay in 1868.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If we could just backtrack for a moment, one of the most fascinating parts of the book to me was uh, that he had strong opinions about the Americans that he met on his trip from Indiana to Florida. He was an opinionated guy.
1: Yeah, and people had strong opinions about him. Uh, you know, they a couple of people wondered why are you a grown man wasting your day looking for flowers.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He was a, he was accosted by people who couldn't figure out what this guy was up to. He was a Yankee in the South. Uh, they they laid a lot of opinions on him as well about slavery, emancipation. Uh, yeah, I think he was discovering uh, a lot of negative feelings about people in the South, mostly whites, uh, who lived in the backwoods, who had little education, who seemed to him to be quite lazy, uh, mm-hmm. whose lives were squalid, mm-hmm. uh, or who spent a lot of their time hunting for sports, something he really didn't approve of. Mm-hmm. So you have to think of this Scottish and, and Northern American uh, guy who who really has a strong passion for cleanliness. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah,
0: that, and I, order. That, that's absolutely right. I mean, one of the things that becomes clear is that he has this kind of binary mentality. Either uh, things are a mess, and they usually have been made a mess by ignorant humans, or they are pristine. And when he's traveling through Appalachia, he has some very really, really kind of harsh things to say about the people that – live there, and, and particularly cleanliness. You're absolutely right. You have some wonderful quotes in the book mm-hmm. of him calling these people sort of disgustingly filthy. Uh, and he clearly, you know, again, you can kind of see the, the, the Scottish Protestant upbringing here. These people, uh, the, the reflection of their soul, which is uh, emanating from their um, appearance, is not a good one. Um, they don't seem to be, you know, uh, as, as, um, as, as cleanly as he would like them to be.
1: Yeah, well, they are probably descendants of Scotch Irish. Yes,
0: <laughs> that is an irony. <laughs>
1: but uh, they didn't come from the Scotland that, that he knew.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, and they were people who hadn't the kind of work ethic and dedication to education and dedication to learning. It mm-hmm. wasn't just that their hair was filthy and that the women didn't have teeth and chewed tobacco and spat tobacco juice. I mean, that was repellent to him. <laughs> that was probably repellent to almost uh, many of your your listeners would mm-hmm. find it probably equally repelling. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. So why did he, um, this was, a, was interesting to me, uh, well, why did he want to go to South America and hear the Humboldt connection is what I'd like you to talk about a little bit.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, he, like many, many others during the first part of the 19th century, looked Alexander von Humboldt, uh, the Prussian naturalist, as the great man of science of his day. This was before Darwin. And, uh, Humboldt's writings had a huge audience in the United States. New York got copies of his, of Humboldt's travels through into Central and South America. Humboldt, uh, mainly w- went into Venezuela. That's about as far into South America as he got. But he wrote compelling stuff about the landscape, the vegetation, animals, native peoples, uh, the the Catholic Church and its missionaries. It's just gripping stuff to read even today. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, But it it, it conveyed this incredible picture of of the rich, luxuriant tropical forest. And Muir said, I want to be a Humboldt. Mm
2: -hmm. Uh,
1: He wasn't alone, but many others felt the same way. You know, Humboldt's name is scattered all across the United States landscape. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Muir was only one follower of many, but he was one who really takes off to see this country for himself,
2: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and
1: uh, doesn't, doesn't make it, at least doesn't make it this period of his life. He doesn't really come back to South America, doesn't get to South America until 1911, as it turns out, but that was the direction he, was, he thought he was going, and I think if it hadn't been for the malaria, he probably would have made it.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So why does he uh, elect to go to California?
1: Well, he had heard about Yosemite, the Yosemite Valley. There had been some magazine articles uh, published during the time he was living in Indianapolis. His friend in, in Madison, a professor's wife, had written to him about this valley. So he heard about it. It sounded it sounded fantastic, you know, fabulous place to go visit. Uh, of course, the gold rush had only been 20 years earlier. And he'd been hearing about the gold rush even when he was in Scotland Um, and hearing about California. So California was this mythic country, too. Maybe not as clear to him as Humboldt had been, but it was an alternative. And I think he felt that he might be healthier living there somehow or other when he was still suffering from fever. Um, There were a lot of boats going that way, so he thought he would just divert his plans a bit and, see what he could see there and go see at least the Yosemite Valley.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, the guy had no plan, really. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that is very interesting. That he, he, he does he's a, he's a kind of classic searcher, but he doesn't have any end in mind. Uh, he, he wants to live like Humboldt, but he's not quite sure where he's going to do it or how. <laughs> I, and it, it is just a remarkable it, – it, I should, I should um, have my students read this book because it's a, it's a good example of how not having a plan can work out very well.
2: Absolutely,
0: I
1: think, you know, this guy would have been considered a disaster by any academic advisor. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Or a a set of parents who were concerned about his getting married and getting a job and so on. But he owned all that aside and just wants to live for the day.
0: Mm -hmm. So he makes it to California and goes to Yosemite where he um, begins to live, doesn't he?
1: His first uh, entry into Yosemite doesn't seem to have left much of an impact, but... Uh, He comes back finally in another year to to live there, and he moves into the valley finds work. Uh, There are homesteaders actually living on the floor of the valley. Mm -hmm. Uh, People try and basically set up hotels, but farming as well. So he finds some work there that can sustain him through the winters, and he's there in in the valley for several years.
0: Mm -hmm. I I was interested to learn that there was already a tourist industry there. Maybe you could say a couple of things about that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well... The, the person he worked for, James Hutchins, a, a British immigrant, had come across you know, the Overland Trails, uh, had established a hotel and even a magazine to promote Yosemite Valley from a tourist angle. So, And there were a couple of other hotels that appeared there. It was very difficult to get into that valley.
2: Yeah, I imagine.
1: Imagine. I mean, you know, there were no railroads to that area, but, um People take boats up the Central Valley on the rivers and, and have to go overland by wagon, horseback. Um, so it, it wasn't easy, but the, the story and the image of this valley was so compelling to people. that They were coming there early on, well before Muir got there. Mm-hmm. The valley became uh, um, was set aside by the federal government in 1864, during the last part of the Civil War, to, to be managed as a state uh, preserve or a park. Um, so that had some effect on encouraging people to come. Muir shows up four years later, so uh, there was something of an industry there, or at least a small uh, trickle of people. It really began to grow in the 1870s, 1880s, and then, of course, Yosemite, the National Park itself was established in
0: 1890. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really, at this point in his life, when he's living in Yosemite, I think that he, uh, and I may be putting it too strongly here, he decides to uh, embark on a scientific career, or what he thinks of as a scientific career. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, he'd always had an incl- inclination towards science. He originally thought he might even be a doctor because that thing be one road into the scientific world. Um, so this wasn't something altogether new. I think he saw himself as a naturalist or a scientist in the Humboldt fashion, or maybe even a professor at some point. But uh, while he's in the in the Sierra Nevada, he begins to see a country that is not all that well described yet, and not well understood by science. Mm-hmm. And so he throws himself into into this. I mean, people are coming into the valley. He's working sawing up logs and as a carpenter and running a sawmill, which were his basic talents, assets at that point. But there, people who are coming into the valley are always asking him questions about trees, these rocks, and he begins to basically become a park naturalist. Mm-hmm. You
2: know?
1: And he sees the possibilities here. The subject that really gets him, Engaged is the study of glaciation, mm-hmm. ice movement across rock, and uh, so he he sees there's an enormous opportunity here. Most of the work that's been done on glaciation has been done in Europe, in the Swiss Alps, or uh, around Harvard. Uh, and people studied the Great Lakes, Pennsylvania, et cetera, but um, nobody really done much on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. And those mountains, in his mind, were clearly glaciated mountains. The valley of Yosemite was a glaciated valley. Mm-hmm. He just got incredibly interested in unpacking the story of how that ice had carved
0: the landscape. Mm-hmm. And it's at this point uh, he um, proposes a theory which meets some opposition among uh, the, the 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 folks who... Uh, are actually running the discipline of geology, is that correct?
1: Yeah, I mean the professional geologist who had been there uh, did not explain Yosemite Valley to his satisfaction Um, so he came up with his own explanation, which was basically that the valley had been carved by ice Um, the prevailing theory was that the bottom of the floor of the valley had subsided Mm -hmm. suddenly, in a kind of catastrophic moment that was the only explanation that um, seemed to be sensible. But Muir comes along with this other explanation, which is less catastrophic, more of the gradual workings of nature, much more benign in a sense, less scary, and uh, offers it. And he's ridiculed.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: What is this? What is this? You know, carpenter? No, guy runs a sawmill. No, I mean, mm-hmm. imagine. I mean, of course, he's got some college education, but. He has no credentials, whatever.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But he dis- he actually discovers, and this is a good story, he actually discovers that there are active glaciers in California.
1: He does indeed. Not only uh, in the Sierra, but up Mount Shasta. And uh, he eventually discovers glaciers all the way into Alaska.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. So, sure, he's, he's a dentist. Others knew about them, particularly Clarence King, uh, a great geological mind was out there in the state, but Clarence King didn't uh, push it as far as Muir did. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: And Mm -hmm. and others who came from MIT into the valley, uh, from other academic centers. There were a lot of professors out there, I guess, on their summer holidays, looking at this valley as well. Um, And and Muir discussed his ideas with him, and they encouraged him. They said, you don't make any sense to me, but if you write it up, I'll present it to the Boston Natural History Society. Mm Mm-hmm. So he was getting a lot of good feedback from people to mm-hmm. encourage him to
0: go ahead. And then he's yeah. I say, and then he's finally published on the on the issue uh, to some uh, criticism and some acclaim.
1: Well, he he expected that he would write a book, a grand treatise on uh, glaciation in the Sierra, and go on from there to write about the ice age and its effects all over planet Earth. He had rather grand ambitions,
2: but mm-hmm.
1: he found it very difficult to sit down and actually write a book. Uh, I guess this is part of his lack of discipline. He needed his machines, but
2: mm-hmm. he, something. <laughs> he didn't have
1: them, so he couldn't get that book going. It just—it just, it just it was a writer's block for him, and all he could really do was write some shorter pieces and articles, which he did for a magazine in California. The uh, Overland Monthly, that was kind of the West Coast answer to the Atlantic Monthly, uh, a literary magazine that uh, had a pretty good um, uh, distribution. And he wrote several articles on the Ice Age for them that he hoped would be some days uh, someday put together into a common uh comprehensive book.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the questions I had, and this is a, a bit of a digression, but having spent a little bit of time uh, camping and and hiking in the Sierra, I, I just uh, wonder how, how does one winter in the Yosemite Valley?
1: Well, I don't think the temperatures in the valley are are all that extreme if you're up in the higher elevations. Mm-hmm. The, the valleys, what about four or five thousand feet mm-hmm. elevation?
0: But they get a lot of snow there, don't they?
1: They do get snow. I've been there in the winter. It melts actually pretty fast. Mhm. The sun comes out. Um you obviously needed a good stove. Yeah.
0: Is, it, yeah. is it is it is it possible to get in or out during the winter? I mean
1: um, Yeah, by in those days by snowshoes.
0: Yeah. Right. Done... No, you
1: you were pretty isolated for parts of the winter at least.
2: Mhm. Mm-hmm.
1: I think it again it melts so quickly. I've been in and out of the valley and there were signs not. so you've got to put on your snow chains, you know, when you come Mm -hmm. in to the valley, et cetera, et cetera. But it melts so quickly that I don't think it's a huge obstacle. But, uh, yeah, it was a pretty isolated place in the winter, and finally it was too isolated for him. I mean, he just felt he was too cut off from people Mm -hmm. through through the winter. But there were other people living in the valley, including Native Americans Mm
0: -hmm. who were living in the valley. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let's uh, take the story to, uh, I guess it's 1880, and he... To camps from Yosemite and um, moves to uh, is it Martinez? He moves well, to California. He, he gets married. Years yeah. first
1: living in San Francisco. Oh, okay. He, he becomes a city man for several years, living in in the city of San Francisco. Through the winters and spending his summers rambling around the state and writing articles. He's learning basically how to write by writing for magazines and newspapers, mm-hmm. getting his training as as a kind of journalist. Uh, so that goes on for several years um, but in uh, in eighteen eighty he engages to marry a young woman who lives in a valley not too far from San Francisco, the Alhambra Valley
2: mm-hmm.
1: near the town of martinez mm-hmm. um, and her she's the only daughter, the only heir to a man uh, who has a pretty substantial estate of land and orchards it's a fruit ranch um, so Muir finds this young woman through mutual friends and besides uh, she is the one he's going to come down from the mountains and get out of the city and he's going to have his, his, uh, his beautiful valley and wife and all of that uh, it's a very shrewd decision but I think it was one based also on deep affection and love for this woman
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and there he starts a family Sorry? He starts a family at that point. He has a couple yeah, of daughters. They yeah, they start
1: having babies. They have two little girls. So he becomes a genuine family man, and he's not only uh, in charge of that uh, part of his life, his family and his wife and so on, uh, responsible, I should say, for them, but he also inherits the responsibility for the whole of the family's estate, mm-hmm. uh, the Strenzel estate, and its you know it's a substantial amount of land.
2: so mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
1: uh, oh. Over a 1,000 acres. Mm -hmm. uh, And he is really the man in charge of that and has to put all of his writing and his naturalist work basically in the closet.
0: Mm -hmm. And how long does that period last?
1: Almost a decade.
0: Mm -hmm. And why does he quit it and return to his...
1: Oh, he's frustrated. I mean, he's terribly frustrated by this work. He's good at it. Again, his managerial skills is... uh, his organizing and his scientific knowledge and all that come to work because he becomes a great orchardist.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And this place makes money.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, it, it supplies fresh fruits, uh, pears, and grapes. And I mean, they have a whole long list of the stuff they produce on this place
2: mm-hmm.
1: to the markets in San Francisco and eventually in Chicago. Mm-hmm. So. He makes a, an economic success of it for his father-in-law, who's never all that adept at it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but it's frustrating work. It's not what he set out to be. It was like working back in the factory again in Indianapolis. He's good at something. everybody says you're great at it
2: mm-hmm.
1: and he can do it, but it's not really what he wants to do.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But he makes enough money that the place is financially secure, even as his own little nest egg squirreled away in bank accounts hmm and he can just say, you know, to hell with this. I'm not going to do this anymore.
0: <laughs> so what does he do then?
1: Well, at that point, he, he retires from his job, his work, but uh, he basically becomes, again, a writer and uh, to some extent a speaker and, and very quickly an activist in the environmental movement.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He becomes one of the founders of conservation in the United States. Uh, mm-hmm. That starts around 1890, when the movement for conservation is just beginning to take form, to save forests and parklands and wildlife. Uh, It's a national movement, but um, by this point, Muir is ready to throw his hand in to the job, and he takes a very active role in all of that. Mm -hmm. And his books are basically, the books, he doesn't write a book until 1894, quite late in his life, mm-hmm. but uh, his books are basically pulled together from all these earlier writings, articles he's written. He, he splices them together into books. He does a lot of, of rewriting, but, but you know, they're not really new materials. Mm-hmm. But uh, publishers in the East, book publishers, magazine publishers, are on him constantly for stuff. They love what he writes.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He interprets California to them. I mean, they a lot of people are, are still gaga about California
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, and also the natural world, mm-hmm. right, with authority, with clarity, with passion about uh, the outdoors, the natural world, and there's a huge market for that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, huge may be an excessive word, but there is a substantial market for it. So he doesn't have any problems finding people who want this stuff, and they're constantly asking him you know, when you indefend us something. Mm
2: -hmm. I
1: mean, I don't think he would have written anything at that point (laughs) unless there was somebody basically standing over him, whipping him on. And the man who did that was Robert Underwood Johnson, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: a highly literate man with great political uh, instincts and connections, uh, living in New York City, an editor at a couple of major magazines, who becomes John Muir's friend, and Basically, his goad
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. pushing,
1: him, pushing him to do, do all of this, to become involved. I think Muir might have continued even on the farm or ranch if it been for Robert Underwood Johnson.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It seems uh, obvious to us today that one would want to preserve these areas, but th- he had opponents, obviously. And maybe you could talk a little bit about them and what what other people, people that were against um, regulations that would remove these. Uh, wilderness areas from various sort of uh, productive enterprises. What, what did they want to do, and how did that spur Muir and his friends to the conservation movement?
1: Well, the West was full of people then, as it still is today, who were out for uh, personal gain and who saw the West as a great treasure trove of natural resources and commodities free for the taking. mm mm-hmm. uh, Most of the West was still public land, hundreds of millions of acres, and uh, lumbermen were out cutting down trees on public lands. People were diverting streams and rivers uh, into gold mining operations. Mm -hmm. Uh, Miners of all sorts were combing throughout the West. Uh, Cattle and sheep herders were using the public lands for their own gain. So there are a lot of people out there who are, saw themselves as classic American entrepreneurs doing what Americans had always done, going out and grabbing resources and making something of them and making something of themselves. They were bound to be opposed to any effort to uh, preserve land, that is to take them out of uh, the reach of private interested individuals mm-hmm. and save them under government supervision.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but you know, I think it's rather remarkable that that uh, not only Muir but others made their case and made it pretty effectively and very quickly and made it in a bipartisan way.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So that around 1891, things were beginning to happen. The Government was beginning to set aside millions of acres of land for forests, eventually for parks. And in the matter of you know the next 20 years, this country created an incredible uh, system of public lands, conservation lands in the American West.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Tell us about the organization, of the Sierra Club. It, it happens about this time and as a part of this movement, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, it uh, it was an idea that came out of the heads of some Berkeley professors mainly who loved hiking in the Sierra and uh, wanted to get together to think about those mountains and talk about their hiking experiences, et cetera, mm-hmm. just as there was one in Boston, the Appalachian Mountain Club and other clubs around the country. Um, they approached Muir to join them, and since he had such a huge national name by this point, that uh, they thought he would be a great uh, figure in front of the organization who had uh, recognition. Uh, and he joined as their first president and continued as their president, for the rest of his life, Club was founded in 1892 in San Francisco.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Most, many of its early members were professors from Berkeley and Stanford, or you know, men from the learned professions, scientists, and government employees. I wouldn't call it a millionaires' club by any means. Most of the people involved in it were comfortably
2: mm-hmm.
1: off, but they weren't rich men. Uh, but they also had the purpose of trying to help promote this conservation movement Mm -hmm. and preserve Yosemite and also work to preserve the forest and and the other national parks that were appearing in California.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now Muir gets the ear of Theodore Roosevelt at some point uh, and takes him on a trip to Yosemite. Is that right?
1: Well, Roosevelt took Muir to (laughs) Oh, really? Okay. (laughs) In a way, yeah. (laughs) Roosevelt was, you know, famous as a naturalist himself. He was incredibly well-educated about natural history. and spent a lot of his youth growing up in New York, up in the Adirondacks, uh, collecting. He loved to shoot and shoot birds and animals and preserve their skins and that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, When he became president, um, he made conservation one of his two most important planks in his domestic program,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: the other being the regulation of the economy. Mm And in 1903, he... Got in touch with Muir and said, I'm coming to California. I want to see Yosemite Valley, and I want you to go with me.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, so Muir joins him uh, at the park, and they go on a three-day hiking, camping, riding uh, outing. And they talk, talk, talk about this place and its future and the conservation movement and birds and all the rest.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And Muir comes away saying, I, you know, I fairly fell in love with him. With Roosevelt,
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it,
1: was, it was an important friendship and a bond. Um, you know, Roosevelt later on disappointed me in many respects, but they had a lot in common. They had a lot of enthusiasm in common.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and one of those disappointments uh, that I think we should probably talk about, um, partially for personal reasons because I've been there and hiked around it, is. Uh, Hetch Hetchy, um, which uh, many of our listeners m- may know about. I mean, A lot of people, I didn't know about it until I was there, uh, which is was uh, a, a, l- a very large valley. Um, well, you can probably describe it better than I can.
1: Well, it's another glaciated valley like the Yosemite Valley, mm-hmm. one that hardly anybody knew about. It was left pretty wild, inaccessible, but it was within the National Park. New York had drawn the boundaries of the Yosemite National Park, basically and included that whole valley at the, at, at the core of it. So there were these two twin valleys. Uh, uh, the city of San Francisco decided they wanted to use that valley for uh, a dam to build, uh, to create their water supply, uh, for our future water supply to allow them to grow into a larger and larger metropolis. Mm-hmm. Um, and many of the people of California were either indifferent or opposed to it, but... Uh, san francisco uh, planners and dreamers had a lot of political power and mm-hmm. went straight to washington to get basically freedom to do this a license
2: mm-hmm. it
1: cost them not a cent i mean there were other options they had but the others all involved legal entanglements and mainly involved some money they would have to put down some money
2: mm-hmm.
1: um but for this site at least the right to build there they had to pay nothing mm-hmm. and that battle went on for years uh particularly from 1908 to 1913. It was a battle that Muir threw himself into because it was right at the heart of his conservation interest, uh, Yosemite Mm -hmm. Valley, Yosemite National Park. Um, He poured out a lot of his own money into the campaign. Mm -hmm. He wrote uh, letters and telegrams to people all over the country. It was one of the first major environmental campaigns preservation campaigns in American history, Roosevelt was standing right at the center of it. As president, he had the power to grant permission or not grant permission, or at least uh, that was the theory. Actually, some of his own earlier Secretary of Interior said, this is illegal. You can't do it by congressional law. This place has been preserved. But Roosevelt dithered and dawdled over this issue for years, uh, and in the very last months of his presidency, when he could basically have said no to the city with no penalty whatsoever he, um, he he issued a permit to build the dam mm-hmm. and that left Muir quite disappointed in him and vowing to fight on and they did fight on for through another administration um, you know it, it wasn't settled until Woodrow Wilson came in as president and, and uh, in a matter of a few months Congress changed the law allowed to the city to build this water supply there. So mm-hmm. we were lost. It, the dam was built. By the 1920s, it had become a reservoir for the city of San Francisco, and it still is its major mm-hmm. water supply today.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, despite the fact that it, uh, it is a reservoir, it's still fantastic. I mean, if, if you, you've seen it, I'm sure. And it's, yes, I've been. It, there, it's amazing. Right. It's an amazing thing to see still. Uh, so um, Muir died shortly thereafter.
1: Yeah, another year. He died Christmas Eve in 1914. Mm-hmm um not because of a broken heart as some of the said over you somebody mm-hmm. but about that because he contracted pneumonia
2: mm-hmm.
1: had a lot of problems with influenza and in his lungs inflammation etc and he basically died of pneumonia contracted mm-hmm. in a cold wet mm-hmm.
2: california
1: mm-hmm. winter he died in the hospital in los angeles
0: of mm-hmm. places. wow yeah. Now, let me ask you a kind of speculative question. What, what do you think that John Muir would think of Yosemite today?
1: Well, I think he would. Um, he was a fairly hopeful, optimistic guy, actually. Tried very hard to believe in the good of people later in his life. I know there are times when this wasn't the case. And I think he would be quite positive about a lot of the things in Yosemite today considering the number of people who want to see this place
2: somewhere mm-hmm.
1: and the economic pressures, anyone who goes there today still finds it a magical place.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, we talk about all the things we've done bad there, but we've done, we did preserve it, and, and the power of that place and its beauty is really unspoiled, and so much else is, is uh, preserved. And
2: mm-hmm.
1: almost all the places that Muir went, that he really loved uh, in the wild. All the plants and animals he once saw and knew are still out there someplace. Mm -hmm. You can still hike along these trails. You can still sleep on a granite ledge Mm
2: -hmm.
1: overnight without a blanket, as he did. (laughs) Uh, You know, you could still stroke the sequoia bark Mm -hmm. and climb a tree, as he did. I mean, uh, I think he would say, you know, these things we started, these preservation programs, these protection programs, have succeeded. And they mm-hmm. have given this country an incredible spiritual and aesthetic asset.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I know that I'm grateful to him because, I, as I say, I've spent a, a little bit of time uh, in uh, the uh, Sierra and in Yosemite around Hetch Hetchy and these areas. And, and they really are quite, quite fantastic. And we're much in his debt for all of the the effort that this Scotsman <laughs> gave to the United States. I hope that we can actually uh, continue to um to live up to his uh, his standards. Um, we've taken up a lot of your time, Don. We really appreciate it. Uh, let me ask you, what, what is our traditional final question here on New Books in History? And that is, what is your next project? What are you working on now?
1: I haven't got one that's taken firm shape yet. I'm very much interested, however, in Charles Darwin mm-hmm. and and Darwin's life and work and legacy, something I've written on earlier in my life. I'm kind of going back to it. I'm particularly interested in how evolutionary theory might be interesting or be useful for historians. Mm-hmm. Uh, Darwin's work was historical and its whole conceptualization. Oh,
2: yeah. No, absolutely. Never,
1: never had much of an impact on the profession of historians, academic historians.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, they read Marx, they read Freud, they mm-hmm. read Foucault, but
2: mm-hmm.
1: one of the greatest minds of the modern era, Charles Darwin, is kind of missed uh, an audience among historians,
0: and mm-hmm.
1: so I'm interested in pursuing
0: that. Yeah, there's uh, actually, it's, it, that's, a, that's an interest of mine as well, uh, and there, there there are not very many people uh, lo- looking into it, um, but we should stay in touch about it because I, I, I know you the few to. that are, I think. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
0: I'd love to. So anyway, um, thank you very much for being on the show, uh, Don. We really appreciate it, and when your um, future... A magnum opus on the application of Darwinian theory to history comes out. We'll have you on again. Okay. All right. Thank you, Mark. All right. Thanks a lot. Take care. You've been listening to an interview with Don Worster, the author of A Passion for Nature, The Life of John Muir. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.